I help you? Yeah, what's your name? My name is Travis. That's nice. What can I do for you? I'd like to know what your name is. What's your name? Give me a break. Well, you can tell me what your name is. I'm not going to do anything, you know. It's... Do you want me to call the manager? Oh, you don't have to call the manager. I mean, I'm just asking. Troy! All right, okay. I'm just... Okay. Can I have a chuckle, sir? And, uh, you have any jujubes? Uh, they last longer. I'd like to get some jujubes. What you see is what we got. standing here. You make a move. You make a move. It's your move. I'll try it, you. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? Okay. Huh? Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore, who would not let... Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore, a man who stood up against the scum, the cunts, the dogs, the filth, the shit. Here is someone who stood up. Here is... of your favorite movie podcast, the magnum-wielding Mohawk Sporting Horse Perspective. This is episode number 80. You talking to me? Haha, <laughs> I'm your host, SportsGuy515, and on this episode, we continue our brand new My Favorite Film series 
with a discussion of Martin Scorsese's 1976 Vigilante classic. Celebrate his 40th anniversary in 2016. So grab some chuckles and a cup of Royal Crown Cola, because that's all we got, and strap in because this is Taxi Driver. But before all that, allow me to introduce my co-host first. My normal force respective co-host, the only man who can get away with taking his wife to see sometime Sweet Susan, ladies and gentlemen, Adolfo. Have you ever seen what a 44 Magnum will do to a woman's pussy? Now that you should see. What a 44 Magnum will do to a woman's pussy, that you should see. <laughs> bro, bro. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also hear that you can get me a brand new Cadillac with the pinks for $2,000. <laughs> I can get you anything, man. <laughs> All right. And make sure it's a pink Cadillac, too. I want to be yeah. just like Dally. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, this episode's guest of honor, if you will, an honorary member of King Kong Company, and he has the patch to prove it. Returning to Force Perspective, ladies and gentlemen, this is Headcase. What's up, everybody? Uh, all the animals come out at night. <clears throat> yes, they certainly do, especially around my neck of the woods. But uh, let me ask you something, though. Correct me if I'm wrong, too, here, but is there really a difference between we are the people and we are the people? Because <laughs> I don't know, man. Um, well, I guess you know they it's 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 all in uh, pronunciation. I guess if we <laughs> are the people, is focus on the actual people and not we are the people, proving that they actually are people. <laughs> Let's not fight, <laughs> <laughs> bro. If only if only that man had shown up to the panel. That I, I was telling another friend of mine, the Beacon Theater would not be able to hold that much alpha if he had actually showed up. <laughs> like, the alpha levels would have been off the charts. Yeah, that would have been, that would have been fantastic. But anyway, everybody, welcome back to Force Perspective. And uh, for those who are just catching this episode in the series, what we're trying to do with this new uh, addition to our kind of Ken film series, My Favorite Film, is to just, you know, one of us, whether it's myself, Adolfo, or we have a guest on, like Headcase in this instance... We just come on and we talk about one film that is considered our favorite film. The last time we had this episode, we discussed my personal favorite film, Brian De Palma's Scarface from 1983. And now we have Headcase on to talk about his favorite movie. Now, this is his favorite movie. Above all others, every movie in existence, this is his favorite movie. So why don't we That's get right. this conversation rolling and you just tell us you know, very briefly so you can kind of get things rolling here. Why is this your favorite film? Well, it's, it, it's kind of weird to really uh... – consider a film like this to be your favorite film every time i mention it to somebody they always give me a weird look i remember when i was in uh, my intro to film class in uh, in college uh i mentioned out loud in front of the class to the 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 professor that taxi driver was my favorite film and he jokingly said you stay away from me from now on so <laughs> wow he's that's interesting. Well, I think the reason is, if, if I may, uh, I think that it's it's not because I don't think that – and I, I, I mean I, I can't tell. I wasn't there, obviously. But I, I don't know what he meant by that, if he's just trying to be funny or whatever. But I think for – I don't think he was commenting on the quality of the film, or maybe he was. But no, I think it's wasn't. because um, a lot of people also – I think the, the a lot of people who, who who have this as their favorite film, I think profoundly misunderstand it. Why do you say that? Uh, because I think people – I think it's the same reason people misunderstand Fight Club in that they they completely misunderstand the main character. 
Uh, and but we can get into into that a little bit later uh, as we as we get into more like deep discussion of the film. Right. But uh, I think that the um, that this is a perfectly uh, acceptable film to have as your favorite film. It's one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, one of the movies that defined you know the seventies, uh, you know kind of the 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 new Hollywood of the seventies. So. Uh, I think that if, if if someone's kind of giving you crap about the quality of it, then I think they're wrong. But um, but I do think that there are a lot of you know just having seen just having gone to college and just having seen the the Travis Bickle poster in every single dorm room alongside the Starface <laughs> really? poster. You know, <laughs> okay, that, that's alongside the Starface poster. Like we talked about last uh, time, yeah, that's guilty. But. Yeah, so uh, it's I think that there are just people out there that just don't get the movie or at least like it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I can understand that. A lot of people seeing the uh, the bloodbath at the end of the film and all the man's like, oh, my God, that's so cool. He killed a whole bunch of people. And depending on what you believe is uh, the ending, you know, he lived to tell about it. But I'm, we'll get into that later. But um. No, I when I that's the thing. When I first saw the film, um, hell, I don't even remember when I saw it for the first time. It was probably 2008 or 2009 was when I really first saw it. Um, I don't know what it is, but it, it really had a profound effect on me. I really was able to relate to the main character of Travis and, you know, a lot of the things he was going through, a lot of the feelings he had, you know, the isolation from uh, the public and, you know, the feelings of loneliness he had. So I think that's what I really um, latched on to because I, I could see myself in the character. And that's kind of it's kind of hard to really you don't want to say that with a character like Travis because, you know, he's not exactly right. a um, – a good person by the, you know, which becomes the irony of the of, ending, but that, yeah, you're absolutely right. But yeah. He, you know, he's, he's going to, uh, porno theaters in the middle of the day. He's, uh, takes his girlfriend to a dirty movie. He's buying, uh, automatic handguns from some shady dealer in a hotel room. And let's not forget the fact that he's probably, it's not, ex, it's not explicitly stated, but it's heavily implied that, the character of Travis is a racist. So, no, you don't want to be – you don't want to relate to something like that. But, you know, you don't have to relate to every well, – I don't relate to every single thing uh, the character feels. Not at all. But, like, I could see myself in the character when I watch the film. And uh, I know when I'm having – when I'm getting uh, really bad, like really – depressed and i really feel like i'm gonna i want to do something like like travis says in the film like i want to i got bad ideas in my head uh i put on the film and it uh calms me down it soothes the savage beast i guess you can say right it's kind of weird to say that but i guess it's i look at it as a cautionary tale as if i really let myself get out of control i could turn into something like Travis right. and do something like he does. But, you know, that's getting more personal than anything. But, uh, yeah, I, I was really able to relate to it. So that's why I was able to call my call it uh, 
my favorite film. A lot of a lot of my favorite films I'm able to relate to in one way or another. So like a, a lot a lot of times it's when people talk about their favorite films it's just films they love to see over and over again. And that and there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. But um a lot of times some of my favorite films I'm able to uh relate to in one way or another. Uh right. like one of the biggest you know um, I could point out some examples. Uh, one of my favorite films is The Elephant Man by That's another David good Lynch. One. Yes. And and I'm I was really able to relate to that just be able just because of the way I was treated as a kid. So, you know, um another another favorite of mine is uh Cool Hand Luke. And, you know, classic. It's just you know, you when you when you watch films and you're able to see yourself in the film, not like as an actor or anything, but when you're able to empathize with a character in one way or another, you know, it really has a profound effect on you. So well, that's film's job, really, to kind of just kind of suck you into the story and you know to kind of put you, you know in place of a character, one of the characters. You know, just that's his job. You know, to kind of just like it's 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 an escape. You know, you picture yourself in the movie and you picture yourself, you know, as one of these characters. You know, and you know whether you uh, you relate to them or not. Like just the point, just the film as an entertainment, um, as a form of entertainment is to be able to escape and to be able to do that. Absolutely. And the other thing I think I picked up on something that you said earlier, where like you said you talked about Travis and you said he's kind of a racist. Well, not a lot of people know, but in the original script, he it was more overt that yes, he was a racist. In fact, the uh, the character of Sport, who was eventually played by Harvey Keitel, was originally you know written as a black as a man. black guy. Yes, yeah. but uh, there was no way they could get away with doing, that, especially after Travis already kills you know the the uh, the robber who was a black guy, like, it would have been, according, this is a, I think it was, this was Scorsese's words, it would have been socially irresponsible if they had left it the way it was in the script, so they had to change, you know, the uh, the race of sport to a, to a white guy. Oh, yeah, it, it's heavily implied throughout the film, like, when, in the, like, uh, the scenes where he's in the diner, and he's, uh, with his other, his other uh, cabbies, like, Peter like the uh Peter O'Boyle's character, Wizard, and I can't remember the names of the other guys. But uh there's the one the the one black guy there and he's he's very uh apprehensive around him. And when he's leaving in the and he tells him bye killer, the black guy tells him bye killer yeah. and does the like the gun motion. Yeah. The the shot of the camera basically implies like it's a it's a whole like a threatening shot. Like from his, from Travis's perspective, right. So now, uh, now Adolfo, here's kind of what I want to know because obviously, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We see this film as one of the greatest American films ever made. But like, what is it about this film? About this like basically socially unstable, you know, slash schizo guy that we've been able to like embrace, you know, after all these years. I think it a lot of it has to do with, let's face it, a lot of it has to do with De Niro. That is De Niro's probably signature performance. And and keep in mind that this is like two years after The Godfather 2 where he delivered probably one of the greatest performances ever. And then two years later he does this film, which is probably um, – I think what everyone 
knows, even if they haven't seen Taxi Driver, they know the you talking to me line, you know, and they equate it with this film. Now, let me stop, let me stop you right there for one sec, because I have to bring this up, because at the, uh, at the uh, 40th anniversary screen at Tribeca this year, um, right before the movie started, De Niro came out, and uh, I forgot the name of the woman that was with them, but they were both they're both the co-founders of the Tribeca Film Festival. So he came out, and he goes like, you know, every fucking time, this this is his words, every fucking time somebody comes up to me, what do you think they tell me? And then he just stops, and he lets the audience say, you talking to me? <laughs> and he goes like, how many of you have already said that line once today? And practically everybody's hand went up. So that was that was an awesome moment. <laughs> but uh, sorry, go ahead, Adolfo. But yeah, I, I think um, that, that that's um, – and that – you know, it's funny because the way things uh, happen in our memory and the way they actually are are always so different because the way the – that line has been spoofed over and 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 over again over the last 40 years. Um, it makes it seem like a much bigger moment in the film than it actually is. In the film, it's just like part of a little montage, right? Of him right. just kind of getting ready and, and you know, uh, doing his whole, like, prepping his little vigilante thing. But and, and when he does it, I'm not saying it's not a good delivery. It's a great delivery. But it's a lot less dramatic than people – when people imitate it, 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 it actually is. Um, but it's still so memorable that people, you know, it's just what people immediately jump to. And I'm not saying that's the only thing that people remember text Jerry before, but uh, I think the reason that it sticks it, that, that line certainly sticks with people. The Nero's performance certainly sticks with people. And the fact that you, would, I, it was not all that common for you to get a film that was so on the fringes of, of, uh, of the mainstream like this was, you know, with with a character that's so clearly a social outcast and is so clearly a, uh, you know, I mean, he's I mean, he's an antihero, but and it's not like right. the antiheroes didn't exist in movies before. But uh, I think it just, it you know, it hit people right at, you know, at the moment for this film. And also keep in mind that um, New York and I mean, I'm sure you, you I mean, you grew up a lot after this film was made obviously uh but since you're from the area you know that new york was not always uh the safest place in the world <laughs> and uh and you know it, it, it certainly captures that and i think it all it, it hit a nerve it, hit a, it struck a chord with with people at, at the time yeah and here and the thing about that too is like i mean when i was too obviously i wasn't really by the time i was born new york had pretty much for the most part been cleaned up and or it was already on the road to getting cleaned up so by the time I actually got to really like take Times Square on my own, that whole essence of what's represented in Taxi Driver was already gone. Right. But I still find all of that fascinating. Like I keep like I keep watching this film or I keep like reading about like, you know, nineteen seventies New York. And there's a great documentary too that I that I've seen called the Forty Second Street Memories, which is on the uh, Grindhouse releasing uh Blu-ray of um Pieces, which just recently came out. And they just talk about, you know, how that time was, you know, with all the grindhouse theaters. They had all the porn theaters around. I mean, it was very seedy. You know, my mother always talked about because she lived in a Queens when she was younger. You know, my grandfather would always, always made sure to never go near Times Square at night because that's when all all the bad people would come out, especially around that area. So but there's still something about that, about that culture, just about that life style that i just find fascinating and i kind of wish i would have been able to see firsthand i know it's sleazy you know i know it's 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 all bad but 
that's that's it's stuff like that that gives the city that a metropolitan area character and i just would have been able to just just taking that in once and be able to experience just how it was back then but films like taxi driver just are basically you know like a time capsule into that time and michael chapman talks about how all they really had to do when they were shooting the taxi scenes when they were driving is just turn the camera on and the city did everything for them you know you got you know the hookers were out and you know in, in you know just just there, like you knew they were hookers, like they didn't try to oh, hide no, or anything. Oh no, you know? those weren't those weren't extras. That was it. That was yeah. those, <laughs> that was New York. Exactly. That, that's so amazing. Like all, like this is what he's all he did was they just turned on the camera and New York did the work for us. So that's mm. that's the kind of thing that I just find fascinating. I always like I always love looking at pictures of, from that time. I was reading articles or books about seventies New York because it's just such a fascinating cultural period as well. Um. I I I've never even thought about it like that. You know, the whole uh um idea of 70s New York. I'm it's it's kind of I guess in that way you can consider the film to be sort of a cultural time capsule. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Michael Chapman, like that's I think that's he said it's his favorite aspect of the film is the fact that you no, know, it really is like a time capsule. Like he talked about how he came to New York in like the 50s and they had all these little like you know quarter theaters you could just go in and see a movie for a quarter then you come out and uh, there'd be like a little like you know kind of like a hamburger stand like right outside the theater you know you'd pay like you know a dollar for like a burger and a soda and then you go back and watch movies all day so he says for like about three dollars back then this is like 1960 i guess 19, late 50s or like early 60s you could literally see like three or four movies and have lunch for like less than three dollars so yeah, that's, too bad. that's too bad it's not like that nowadays and, and oh, go to, to a, you go to a fucking uh, AMC theaters. The tickets are ten fifty. Popcorn and a drink is like twenty dollars or more. You know. And, well, shit. Just watching it this time, you know, he's got the he's got his chuckles. He's got his Clark <laughs> bar. He's got his popcorn and his he's got boobers. his Royal Crown. Yeah, his Royal and Crown Cola. It was three bucks. Yeah. Okay. I was just about to bring that up because one of my favorite scenes is this scene. Just the way. You know, like, and it's 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 at the beginning of the film, so you kind of already start to see, like, you know, you know, he's a lonely guy, but he's it's like it's like a split personality thing where he tries to make friends. He's trying to make friends with that uh with the lady there, the the concession lady, and she's not having any of that because, of course, this is a porn theater. Only skeeves go to porn theaters, so it's exactly. like you know, it's already like a judge of character, you know, just by walking in. But uh, as soon as he, you know, as soon as she rebuffs him, he goes, okay, I'll have a uh. Uh, chuckles there. Uh, do you have any jujubes? You know they last longer, so uh, uh, I really like some jujubes. What, what I want to know is why do they even sell candy at the porn theater? Like, all right, I'm not not to get too personal, but when I'm enjoying some naked ladies on my screen, regardless of what screen that could be, last thing I'm thinking about is candy and popcorn. Well, that's how warped the guy is. Like, this is his culture, bro. Like, like that's the thing. It's not him. It's like, I mean, they clearly, it's not just him. I mean, the theater sells it, period, as if, like, it's, you know, I don't know. It just, it's just, I, I, I just find it funny. I guess it would be to uh, give the illusion, the more of illusion that it's a, a, a movie theater instead of just being a place where people can, you know, watch porn and jerk off publicly. <laughs> But here, but this is the point I'm trying to make actually with this hand. You already brought this up, uh, headcase. Um, you uh, you're watching this scene right? You know, during the uh, the screening at Tribeca, and then all of a sudden, you know, like you know, I'll, I'll take the the 
chuckles, you know, the jujus, the popcorn, you know, Coca-Cola. We don't got Coca-Cola, Rory Crown Cola is all we got. And then as soon as she gives them everything, she says, you know, 385. Everybody starts laughing. Everybody started laughing when she said like 385. Because it's like he got all that for less than five dollars, and now that's like forty bucks at an yeah. So, <laughs> so that's I I just love that whole like whole cultural kind of you know difference there. You know, less than five dollars for all those snacks as opposed to today where you're paying like an arm and a leg for that. Exactly. Stuff. But that's that that became one like that that's now you know contemporarily for us that's a comical moment. Yeah, I think using this 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 philosophy though, I think that. Um, you know, Clark bars and uh, did they even make Clark bars anymore? I don't think so. I, it chuckles right. too. I didn't even know chuckles was a real candy until I looked it up. <laughs> uh, I think like maybe let's say Skittles and M and M's. They should just start buying advertisements on uh, Pornhub and stuff. Get Jr. to do the commercials. There Jim Ross for Skittles. <laughs> Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but uh. That scene actually was filmed at a real, uh, you know, 16-millimeter porn theater, according to Scorsese. And uh, they uh, they had to uh, – what's it called? Uh, obviously, there was a real film showing there, but they had yeah, to, they had to had like, to, grain it they, out because you couldn't show that or else you yeah, get up they, to an X rating. Yeah, he mentioned that during the uh, the commentary he did for the Criterion Collection in the – I think it was 86. That, that's right. They, they, they did uh, some kind of uh, – I can't remember what I can't remember what it is either. I I, I don't want to say he, he uh they oiled it out or something. Yeah, but they, something they there you go. Perfect. Yeah, that, they definitely exactly they definitely censored it. Not not like legitimately like black bar censor, but they definitely blurred it out so that you couldn't yeah. actually see what was going on. Because like you said, it was a legit pornographic film. Now here's kind of a weird question, but let me ask Adolfo real quick. Have you heard that commentary track before? The criterion no, release. I actually didn't realize that it had a Criterion release. So as you know, I collect uh, laser Criterion discs. laser discs. So now I'm gonna have to go out and find the Taxi Driver laser disc because well, uh, on eBay they're like ten bucks. So oh, I'm like, sure they are. They're not that expensive. Yeah. Um, well, also, you know, the Criterion commentary is actually also available on the Blu-ray release. Yes, correct. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, on the yes. uh, yeah, it's on there anyway. So. Oh, but which since you're a collector of laser discs, I figured. Which Blu-ray? Because like Text Driver has like seventeen different versions out there. Okay, there's um. I have the. It's the first. It's the first Blu-ray release. It has like um, like a big block blocky uh, packaging. Because there's like there's there were like two. There are two different like Blu-ray releases that I know of. The one like the first one is the big blocky, and it has him. Uh, the picture of him with the with the mohawk and the yellowish background, and yeah. that ha- that has you know they meant the the big marketing was it was mastered in 4K and that one has all the uh, um, bonus features on it. It has the Criterion commentary. It has two other commentaries as well, including a new commentary from the screenwriter. And uh, then there's a then there's a second one released where it specifically says like at the bottom mastered in 4K. Don't get that one. That just has the film by itself. It has no special features. Right. Yeah, that's the one actually I have because I picked it up very cheap. So uh, yeah. that's the I, I, I know I I, I I when I bought it after um I, I knew that it was gonna be it was gonna be bare bones, but I just wanted a copy of it and I, yeah. I bought it. But um that's why I wanted to know which one had it. But either way, I'll probably still go out and get the uh. 
the laser disc because I like collecting those old Criterion laser discs. So I'll probably pick it up anyway. But um, I will have to uh, track down the um, uh, the Blu-ray with the actual special features on it. Well, here's my yeah, thing. here's I... my kind of weird question though, and maybe you could uh, maybe you can enlighten me on this head case because okay. during the commentary, of course, as he's talking about how like my new film Goodfellas, you know, which is coming out soon, right? And I'm th- yeah. I'm just sitting there. I'm like, didn't that come out four years later? This is really 1986. Didn't that come out four years later? And then he's like, my new film, Goodfellas. So it's like maybe they meant 89. That's a little bit closer to 90. But it's, I just kind of thought that was weird. Like maybe the time was off or something, you know? Yeah, I'm not. I think I don't know how long it took them to make uh, to make Goodfellas. Because I don't, I don't I didn't research that. But yeah, well, but it, it's be- very it's very weird. But you know. Things, you know, films and can be in production for a long time. Same thing go with CDs. I can definitely well, yeah, but like the tell you about that. It was like it was either already out or was going to come out soon, you know? That, I wonder. Yeah. Because, yeah. because between 86 and and between 86 when, and, and 1990, I mean, he had The Color of Money. He had Last Temptation of Christ. He had New York Stories. So there must be a, a, a mistake on one that was recorded. Yeah. Because he had a bunch of stuff in between. That's what I'm saying yeah. too. That's that, that's my that's my logic as well. Yeah, uh, I didn't really look into the details on that. So yeah, there was probably there's probably a mistake there. But uh, the one I have though is the uh, well originally I bought this is how the, I saw it the first time I bought the uh, 2006 DVD release. That's like it's the one you described I think headcase the one that has like him with the mohawk and it's the black and yellow like side by side. You know, that's, yeah. that's the first version I ever bought. It was a DVD release. I think it was for the 30th anniversary. Which yeah, it's same like it's, here. It's, 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 and I'm just – I'm thinking about that. I'm like, holy crap, it's been 10 years since I bought that now. You know, and then just recently, I think last year I picked up the steelbook from Best Buy that has like that cool artwork of him in the taxi. So that's uh, – yeah. I think I, I tagged you in the picture when I put it up. But that's you the did. Blu-ray you did. that I have, yeah. And that has the commentary. Sure. Yeah, I was about to say. I'm pretty sure the, the steelbook release is just the uh, – the original Blu-ray repackaged. Exactly, so, that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, I, I also bought the uh, the DVD release when it uh, the the 2006 DVD release when I when I saw the film. Um, and uh, th- that's mainly the reason why I bought a Blu-ray player is because I had heard so much good things about the uh, the the Blu-ray release. I know it got. When I looked on like Blu-ray.com, the re- I, I take their reviews with a grain of salt. But when like the audio was rated five stars, the picture quality was rated five stars, the com the bonus features was rated five stars. I'm like shit, I've gotta actually get this. But I don't, I'm not, sh- I can't even, I don't have the DVD anymore because I ended up selling it after I got the Blu-ray. So I don't, I can't, I don't think there was that much of a difference between the two, like. In terms of special features, I mean, right. So, I'd have to act, I'd have to do more. I'd have to look that up to see if there was any difference. But I'm pretty sure they just transferred all the special features from the DVD and maybe added like one or two more things for the Blu-ray release. Right. But okay, the big I... the the big selling point for the Blu-ray release was that it was you know mass remastered in 4K and it, the Blu-ray release, if you look at the, it, it's absolutely phenomenal. The the picture quality, you know, I mean, I'm sure casual fans won't, you know, won't be able to tell much of a difference. But 
if you really watch like the DVD release and the Blu-ray release back to back, you can tell the Blu-ray release is uh, superior. Now, kind of to like kind of keep this stream of a uh, of conversation going, as far as like you know, we were talking about like him going to like the porn theaters and all that. I thought it was interesting that um, Scorsese pointed out that it was important for the Travis character to not know anything about pop culture. He didn't know celebrities. He didn't know politicians. He didn't know movies. You know, he didn't know any of that type of thing. You know, that wasn't because that's how isolated he is from like what we call, you know, the, the normal world. You know, we watch movies. Yeah. You know, we, we watch, you know, you know, we follow politics. You know, we do all this stuff. He only watched his porn movies. And that's the thing, yep. too, about his character because only in his world – okay, this is my first point. Only in his world would he consider taking a woman out to see a porn movie just a regular night out. You know, he it's like he and he's not he doesn't realize what he's doing wrong. And that's what's so uh, interesting and fascinating about the character that he's literally like in his own like fantasy where he could just yeah, do very... this and, and not has shown. He doesn't see what's wrong with taking a woman to a porn movie, you know, and absolutely. It's like, and the other thing, too, this is the other point I want to make. This is a man too, who hates the prostitutes. He hates the pimps. Like he hates everything about sex, but has no problem watching porn. So it's like, yeah, it's... so like Betsy pointed out, and then, I mean, there's no other aspects to it too. But this is just one of them. You know, he's the walking contradiction. So you guys can uh, elaborate on that as well. But that's what I also found fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Travis is very self-contained. He's so self-obsessed. He's so obsessed with his own world that he, you know, has no idea what uh, when he when. Uh, that uh betsy brings up like you mentioned the chris christopherson song which mentions the walking contradiction he has no idea uh who that is i don't know much about music and blah 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 blah. i don't know yeah. much and then when they're leaving the movie theater i don't know much about movies. i don't know much know about movies nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um it's just it's sad i mean and then you know it's sad when you realize that you know he's so self contained and that he doesn't realize what he's doing wrong yeah it's it's funny like why would you you know the 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 initial reaction is ha ha he took he he's so he's so self-contained that he took his girlfriend to a porno movie and then the the realization sets in like oh my god he's so self-contained he took his girlfriend to a porno movie you know it's it's it, it, it goes from being funny to almost sad see i think that's a really sad scene uh, and, and like it, I it's feel it's so uncomfortable. You're absolutely right, Adolfo. Well, it's, it's... I mean, first of all, it's super cringy. You know, like the second like, the second you see him walk up to the theater, like it's super cringy. But but once they're in there, and he clearly is just he just does not understand. So like, you know, I, I've read several interpretations of this before, and like some people think, you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have kind of rightly said, you know, he's a marine, so a lot of people think maybe he has PTSD, which I think a lot is very. Uh, probable uh but a lot of people have also written from the point of view that he might be he might have autism he might have a a learning disability he might have these things that would prevent him from understanding that this is not socially acceptable And and when i see that scene it's it's funny initially but then as the scene goes on i you kind of just feel bad for him because he literally actually he's not playing he's he honestly doesn't understand that that's this, what he did was bad. And now here, the thing about uh, I mean, you brought up the PTSD interpretation, which is it's a fair interpretation, but Schrader has gone on to say that that's not really his point. 
as far as Travis, yeah, he was a Marine, he was in Vietnam, you know, and I, I guess ultimately what he was saying was, you know, um, do soldiers come back and have PTSD or have like problems adapting? Sure. But others go to war, they come back and they're perfectly fine. So that's, he doesn't want, he didn't want that to be like a cause for the way he is. But he kind of wanted to kind of just linger there, too. Like, you know, he, he was in Vietnam and all that, but he didn't really want PTSD to really be part of the whole thing. Yeah, but, you know, as much as I respect Paul Schrader, the thing is about film is that what – and I know this seems contradictory um, – what the writer and the director intend doesn't necessarily have to match up with interpretations. And it, even if the interpret someone interprets something differently than what was intended – it still doesn't make that interpretation in English valid. Yeah, I, that... I, well, no, that makes sense. And I think his actual quote here that I actually wrote down was, uh, it's not that war creates psychopaths, it's that war can create psychopaths. So mm-hmm. that's that's his initial point, that uh, you know, he didn't really want that to be a factor, even though just based on, you know, he's a veteran, you know, he's in Vietnam, it could be a factor. But it's that's not like the definitive answer, you know? I guess that's the best way to explain it. <laughs> And the same can be said about the ending, you know. I don't know if we want to get into that right away, but uh, you know, a lot of people have a uh, different interpretations about how the ending scene goes. Right, right. And I, before you know. we actually get to that, though, because I kind of I want to spend a, little, a good amount of time on the ending because the ending is like, I keep saying fascinating, but this whole movie is just fascinating. Absolutely. Um, the thing By the about- way, real quick, sorry, I did some Google foo here, and the. Uh, the Criterion uh, uh, commentary was recorded in 1990, so oh. that makes more sense with the Goodfellas thing. There you go. Yes. So why did they say 86? Is that a I don't know. Then? I don't know. I found it on the Criterion website, like uh, through like you had to dig and you saw something about 19 Taxi Drivers uh, release in 1990. So I don't know. Well, there you go. Problem solved. That makes more sense with him saying my new movie Goodfellas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, now to uh, get back on point, what I wanted to bring up actually, because this kind of is going to lead to to the ending, is you know basically like we already talked about, the whole film is kind of about loneliness, right? So on the surface, that's what you're getting at, you know, traveling like loneliness that follows me, you know, and all that. But as you watch the film, and as you kind of explore this theme of loneliness. Of course, the uh, the metaphor of the taxi cab, the taxi driver, is completely intentional as far as, you know, the whole loneliness theme. But as you watch that, you know, and the plot builds around this, you come to see that the theme really isn't – by the end of the film, you come to see that the film – the theme of the film isn't really loneliness but self-imposed loneliness. He's doing this to himself. It's like he's tortured by society. He's tortured by all these things that piss him off that he wants to do something about. But he keeps torturing himself with it. Why drive a cab at night when you know that at night all these skeeves, all these prostitutes, all these pimps, all these drug dealers come out at night? Why expose yourself to that if it pisses you off? You know it pisses you off. So it's like he's torturing – it's like self-inflicted torture at that point. Just like here, self-imposed loneliness. You know, He's choosing to be distant from society. And that's another aspect of the film, of, of the character itself, too, that is just brilliantly written, I think. Because it's so, I can't think of the right word, but it's just so, like, enigmatic, I guess. But, I mean, that's not, um, 
it's not uncommon for people to seek out things that uh, anger them or put them in a negative space. Um, Absolutely. I, I think there at, is – sorry. I, guess, I don't mean to interrupt. I was going to make a joke. Just look at all the people who bitch about uh, WWE and say, I'm never – you know, they bitch about Raw and they're still watching the next week. Yeah, right. So to 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 a, to a yeah to a less serious extent, yeah. But I mean that that's true. Like there are people who who are kind of addicted, in a sense, to negativity and things that they're 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 addicted to being angry. You know, they're addicted to to having rage about something, and it's not. Uh, so I, I think it's just another element of that character, um, kind of to add to his little to his kind of. You know, uh, psycho soup he's got going on in his head. You know, um, I, I think it's I think it's very telling. You know, especially considering what he goes on to do in the rest of the film. Yeah, but it's like those aspects of the character. It's just you know what a great script, what a great character written by Paul Schrader. It's just such a great film. And also, like, and then before we get to the ending, actually, too, we have to we have to talk about Bernard Herman. Because oh, God, yes. this was his final score before before he passed away, and I know Adolfo and I brought up Herman when we did our uh, essential films episode for Vertigo, and how influential he was with that. And uh, just his score here is just it's all brass. You want brass, you know that that was the that's the famous quote that Martin Scorsese likes to say every time he talks about Bernard Herman. It's like you're looking for brass. I'm seeing brass, you know. And you know the score very very. Uh, emblematic of the of the travis character so what do you guys think of that i absolutely i absolutely love the score and um the one thing i remember from the uh criterion commentary is uh scorsese saying just how much it was influenced by a uh a van morrison song titled tb sheets it's like this 10 minute uh blues influence number and it's just if you if you've ever actually listened to it, and I listened to it for the first time last night because I had never even heard of the song. It you can definitely tell the uh, the uh, the influence, and, and it's not it's not the first time uh, Scorsese would you know reference that because he also uh, uh, featured it prominently in a movie in 1999 called Bringing Out the Dead. So that, that's obviously it's a song that had a pronounced uh, effect on him and uh so it's the the inf- it's just so the whole dreary and the it's whole dr- it's dreary and the saxophone is just uh it's 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 also kind of romantic um i could say yeah i can understand why it, you say that it, it has like this kind of twinge of of, of romance which i think is hel- not hilarious but it's it's very amusing uh to see it you know juxtaposed against the images of of uh of new york city at the time uh where which which looks like he's driving through hell on earth you know and then but you hear this very you know jazzy romantic kind of score underneath that and it's i don't know i I do love that juxtaposition i think it's um uh, I think it says a lot about the the character and about the film. I think maybe uh, how he maybe even sees himself as he's driving through these streets. Absolutely. Uh, Scorsese told a story about. Uh, I know I'm going to be jumping ahead a little bit, but he told a story about the um, 
the ending of the film, like the last shot of Travis looking at the rearview mirror, then you hear that kind of like uh, that sting noise, and then his like he his eyes disappear, and then the film ends. So like he wanted, you know, obviously that's like a symbol of how like he's a ticking time bomb, and after the appalling acts that he just did, he's gonna do them again and possibly worse next time. But Scorsese was looking for like a like something to symbolize that, like a sting, you know. So you know he goes to Bernard Herman and he's you know so so he's looking for a sting, and he plays him like this note on a on a xylophone. But uh, Scorsese wasn't really happy about it. it. To him, it sounded too normal. So when he told Bernard Herman this, this is what he, Bernard Herman tells him: just play it backwards, and then he just and then after that he walked out of the room. That's it. <laughs> he just said just play it backwards, and then he walked out of the room. So <laughs> that's a great story because there's a lot of wacky stories about how Herman was like when he was working. And this is just one of them. I, I heard one about how they talked about also during the panel, how like when he was actually like re- recording the, uh, the, uh, the score, like, you know, he would, you know, like he, the conductor, he would move like his stick around and he kept hitting his stick on the lamp that was on the stand where he was working. And after he hit it once too many times, he just got frustrated and left and walked out of the room. <laughs> everything just stopped because he kept hitting his stick on the lamp and then he just he just he didn't say nothing he just got frustrated and walked out of the room so i guess that was his thing though like he would just walk out of the room when he was angry you know just play it backwards <laughs> but uh I-, I love stories like that bro but, but of course bernard herman a legend you know he could have his quirks too you know <laughs> but uh yeah obviously like just a classic score and his very last like we mentioned before he passed away, but uh, um, I also kind of wanted to delve very quickly into uh Travis and his women because that's a very uh that's that drives the plot along for this film because the thing about Travis is that he has Betsy, the woman that he desires, the one that he wants but that he can't have, and then you have Iris, the woman that he can have but that he does not desire. So. And then I remember Schrader talking about how basically this kind of juxtaposition is kind of like Madonna whore syndrome, as he called it. I don't know if that's yeah. a thing or if that's like something that you know, he came up with, but the Madonna whore syndrome, turning the Madonna into a whore, turning the whore into a Madonna. You know, so I, that whole aspect of the relationships, too, is also um, very interesting as well. Absolutely. Um it's, it's so weird to see the whole the the Travis and Iris relationship i guess you could call it uh, i i use the the air quotes for that because it's not really a relationship because there's no but i don't know if he sees her as like like uh if he if he's like the parent if he's trying to be a parental influence or but it's just it's very strange to like why would why if the out when someone from the outside just go, why would you want to help uh you know a teenage prostitute like that all you know just out of nowhere like that and then it's you know it's uh it has it all has to do with travis's uh fantasy of being a hero you know in his own mind he he wants to uh shoot uh palantine the presidential uh hopeful that you know betsy is campaigning for I don't know if he does. He's, if he's if he's wanting to shoot him for her, and then he wants to you know free Iris. It, it's so weird because. Well, I mean, then the, the, you start talking about that, then you you kind of get into the whole 
uh, someone trying to shoot Reagan for Jodie Foster. Which, oh uh, yeah, a couple years later, like not like so. Oh, yeah. It's a it's a little it's a little weird when you think about it, but uh, oh, yeah. my, my interpretation of that has always been that he sees the politician as having corrupted. Um, uh, blanking on the name already, a Betsy. Betsy. Um, so he he he's out the it, it, but it's also that you know. I mean, let's face it. There's a little bit of that like, uh, quote unquote, nice guy syndrome to him too, where he's he feels spurned by it, and he wants to kind of teach her a lesson, and he's kind of using it as an excuse that he's corrupted her, uh, so he wants to kill him, kind of thing. Yeah. That's kind of how I've always seen it. I definitely that definitely makes sense. Well, here's the weird thing about it all. I, and when it comes down to like Paul Schrader brought up the the term father figures, like the killing of father figures. You know, it's funny because you know society makes him a hero for getting lucky and killing the right quote unquote father figure, as Paul Schrader put it. Uh, if he had killed the other one, which was Palantine, you know, he would have been reviled as an assassin. So in the end, it's it not only is it very ironic that, that this happened, but it's also kind of fate and luck on the part of Travis too, because you know, like we said, had he shot Palantine, he wouldn't. Nobody would be considering him a hero. And it, it's funny too because um, we're watching a we're watching the movie at the screening, and uh, somebody uh, when Palantine came out, like the um. There was a scene like at the beginning where Betsy was, you know, Charles Palantine is like this a smart, you know, intelligent, you know, he works for the people, you know, she forgot to say sexy like Albert Brooks mentioned. But uh <laughs> but uh right at that point though, somebody yells feel the burn. So <laughs> so everybody starts laughing at that point. And it's like uh you know, it's 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 interesting though, you know, kind of I don't I they didn't really delve into Palantine's like politics at that point, but he seemed to be like you know, the man that the people were getting behind. And I kind of saw the similarities, like, between today and, and the movie. You know, so that was, that was interesting. I, I mean, I, I, I was under the impression or the under the assumption that he was a, uh, like, a Democrat because uh, he was talking about being for the people and all this and stuff. Um, that's that's the impression I got. Yeah, that, exactly. And, you know, that's that's the uh, that's the impression that I, that I got as well, that he was more of, like not, – not, not to go in like that deep into it, but he was more like, like the Democrat candidate who uh, who was like more like that the, the people were rallying around, you know, that of the of New York. But now we can get into uh to the ending because I kind of wanted to like segue that conversation into the ending because like I said, you know, he failed to kill Palantine, so now he's gonna kill the other evil, which is you know the pimp, his handler, and then the uh, the mafioso just happens to be there, you know. So this ending sequence where he shoots through the uh, the brothel or whatever you want to call it um kind of landed scorsese into some hot water with the mpaa you know the they didn't like uh they didn't like the sequence at all but there was very little he could cut at least that scorsese wanted to cut and um so the problem was solved by just desaturating the the color so yeah. he, he took uh, he took the film and uh like he decided to like on those sequences where like you would show blood they would just desaturate, you know, the color, make it like 40% color, 60% black and white, so that you don't really see, you know, the the, the tone of, of the blood anymore. And it turns out that 
when Scorsese saw the finished product, that's exactly he loved how it came out. So he kept it that way forever. And it's yeah. kind of sad because I think Michael Chapman talks about how he would have loved to have been able to like restore like the original saturation for the blood. But those, remember, those negatives, I think, have been lost because of the deterioration. I was about to say, that. I was yeah. a, that's exactly what I was about to say. It's a shame that those negatives were lost, that we, at least, even in a, even in just as a bonus feature, that we can't see this, that we can never see the scene the way it was originally filmed. All we've got, there's pictures of, you know, um, De Niro in the film with the, with blood on him, like, uh, like just like I guess they're press photos or something or behind the scenes or something, and there are pictures of him with the blood on him, and that's pretty much all you can. The only way you can see the see that scene as it was originally filmed, because you know right. you can't desaturate those pictures. Now, unless, I mean, yeah, yeah. Now that's a, that's a great scene though. The only thing I didn't understand really, and maybe you guys can help me out a little bit, because I'm just trying to just think about this logically. So. He shoots off the doorman's hand, right? And yet the guy is still he doesn't he's still following him around. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. I'll, like what are you planning to do, bro? Like what exactly is your end game? You know? I think he's just in a rage that he's lost his hand and he's Absolutely. He's just he's so just, he's just so unbelievably pissed off that he's going to, you know, like you you shut off my hand, you motherfucker. I'm going to kill you. So and the one that's one a lot of things one thing that people don't bring up is um that actually is a uh when he starts yelling I'll kill you I'll kill you that's a a reference to a scene earlier in the film um with the hand when Travis is uh in his cab and all of a sudden somebody's walking by screaming I'll kill her I'll kill her and you know that a lot of people don't make that parallel. I'm glad you brought that up too because I kind of saw another parallel to that scene in the uh, near the beginning when uh, Betsy and Albert Brooks are kind of joking about like if you lose these fingers, you know how would yeah. you like a match? So I saw that you know watching it more recently, and I'm like, hmm, is that supposed yeah. to be foreshadowing? Yeah. You know, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's cool to think about these things. It's funny because so I saw I first saw this film, um. It like I'd say uh, twelve years ago or so. I got, and I know this because I got um twelve years ago was when I first got Netflix and the DVD the DVD only version of Netflix because obviously they didn't have streaming back then. Right. And when I got it, I I immediately like put every all the films in my queue that I had never seen and always got wanted to see. And Taxi Driver is one one of the top ones. So uh, I had because I somehow had missed it in college and never watched it in college and and so I wanted to see it and uh, so so when I watched it something kind of struck me as funny it was because during this scene because there's this song by Pantera now Headcase you're the you're the music expert maybe you know what I'm talking about but there's a song by Pantera called the Badge that samples this this scene. And uh, and I'm not even a big Pantera fan, but the only reason I know the song is because it's on the uh, the soundtrack to The Crow. Uh, but it's uh, it starts off with him with the De Niro line "Suck on this," sampled from the movie. It goes yeah. into the metal song, <laughs> and then at the end of the metal song, you hear you just hear the "I'll kill you, I'll kill you" like over and over again. Yeah. So 
if you've never heard that song, uh, check it out. It's, it, I mean, it's it's fine. It's a Pant- it's 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 a Pantera song. If you you know what you're getting with a Pantera song, pretty much. But uh, but it's it's just funny as a a piece of uh, taxi driver uh, trivia. Oh yeah, it's always it's always interesting to hear songs that feature random samples of films. You know, because you see the thing is, I heard that I had that soundtrack for years, right? And before I saw the movie. So when I finally saw the movie, I'm like, oh, I know this now. Well, remember, Adolfo, last time we talked about all those songs that sampled Scarface line, which is like, you know, you get like a dime a dozen for those. But uh, oh. <laughs> anyway, but uh, now, so so back to the ending. Um, just it's obviously it's 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 a very uncomfortable scene. Obviously, you know, you have everybody get their hands getting shot off. You have guys, you know, getting shot in the head. You know, but it's like, and then at this, and then Jodie Foster's character is watching the whole thing. And I remember, like, I mean, this is a common story. Like, if you watch any like behind the scenes about this film, you you know. But the, she brought it up again during the panel that in order to take the role, she was required to have four hours of therapy to make sure that she was sane enough to be able to play the role. You know, that she was of sound mind, as she put it. So, um, but I like just, what do you guys think about that whole ending sequence? And just how it basically, like, you know, the film is building up little by little to this way. Like, Travis's rage go, just grows and grows and grows. So finally, it just explodes in this orgy of violence. So what do you guys just think of the scene as a whole and how it complements the story? I think it wraps up the story absolutely perfectly. You know, it's it's like you just said, you know, Travis's rage and, you know, is building throughout the film. And we don't and- know how it's going to come out. But once we see how it does, you know, that's it just complements everything. Absolutely. And, well, you know, a lot, it, it's it's hard to really just, you know, you can just say, like I said earlier, oh, my God, the violence is so cool, you know, but it's there, there, there's know. there's deeper things. There's more deeper things going on here, you know, exactly. Well, you I know, think that's and, the only way to end that movie, to be honest. And, of course, you know, a lot of people have brought this up, but um, when the. When it's all over and he tries to shoot himself and, you know, he's out of bullets and the cops bust in and he has the he puts his finger up to his head and simulates the gun. It's supposed to uh, represent his uh, the the samurai dying with honor principle. So that's uh, that's the thing, too, like they talked about in the uh, I think it was Schrader and Scorsese both mentioned the same point in the commentary that, uh, you know, you have this guy who has like these inner demons and and other cultures like the Japanese, like the Europeans, they take that out on themselves. But it's a very American thing for that person to take it out on other people. Somebody else. Yes, yeah, exactly. So that's what's but, going on here, too. That's that's a, that's a deep cut right there. Absolutely. And and the one thing that I, I love is just the very end of that when uh, the the bird's eye view shot of the entire area. From the room, all the way down the stairs, right. all the way out to the outside where the crowd of people and the cops have all shown up. I just love – it, it's just so uh, just so amazing well, the remember, way they shot going, it. Remember, yeah, exactly. Remember, he's going for tabloid realism here as, as he put it. You know, Absolutely. You see like all those newspaper headlines, you know, man shot in his house or like alleged killer shot, you know, and they'd show like the picture, you know. So that's what he was going for. With that overhead shot, he wanted to get, bring a tabloid realism to the scene. Right, absolutely. All right, so now the uh, moment of truth. 
So you guys, you know, can take as long as you want to uh, talk about this. But right after that, everything that happens right after this, real or not real? I'm still not sure, to be honest with you. I think I every time I see it, I have a different interpretation of it. I think what I – here's what I don't think it is. I don't think it's – I do not think it's, uh, you know, oh, he, he, he went into the coma. Uh, nothing bad happened to him. Uh, he he reconciled with Betsy, and everything is uh, hunky-dory, happy ending. That is what I do not think it is. Um, if I go with the is it, it, it's not real, uh, that's what I tend to favor because it just because it's so neatly wrapped in a bow. Um, it just seems like it's his kind of dying thoughts or like his um, dying like fantasy or or, or whatever. I mean, as he was clearly a, del- a delusional person, but the only other, th- the only thing that kind of makes me kind of take it back to reality is a little bit is that very, very last thing you see of him is that he, when he's driving away from Betsy, all of a sudden you look, you look, you see him look really quickly into the, to the rear view before it, like, as if he just got upset about something. Uh, so if you take it that that's a reality that, you know, kind of like what to you were to what you were saying before that he was hailed as a hero because he killed this pimp and he saved this little girl. You know, and he killed all these terrible people. Uh, but if he would have killed the, the the presidential candidate, he would have been reviled as a monster. Um, if you do take it in that and, and, and as a kind of a criticism of society, you know, um, you can kind of see it as like, yeah, he's fine now, but this is just going to start all over again. So I, I can't I, – I go back and forth on whether it's real or not. I, I don't think it's as, you know, wrapped in a bow, nice, happy ending that some frat boys seem to think it is. Uh, but I certainly um, think if it's real, it's a lot more complicated than, than people think. Absolutely. Um, most people seem to think that it's uh, – like, like, like you said, it's his dying dream or whatever – but that was the one thing Schrader said he didn't sp- he did not write it that way. So you know if you were to take uh, the screenwriter uh, or the director's word of God, then then it has to be real. But you know it's it's that's the thing. Uh, these kind of films are really up to the interpretation, I think, and it's very I, I I'm pretty much siding on the with the popular vote that it's not real. It's very, it's, it, there's so many things about it that, uh, that just, you know, that are very strange. The one thing that really, uh, stands out in my mind is the fact that, you know, Travis is outside talking with this other cabbies and they, Oh, you got a fare. And, you know, apparently the person who, who you know, his fare just, happen to get in the car yeah that's that's the you thing know. that you see when you i see stuff like that that's when i'm thinking this can't be real yeah you know, nobody just hops into an empty cab you know exactly plus the, the way she was shot in the rearview mirror as they're driving and you, he's talking to her and the way she's framed in that rearview mirror just makes gives her like this very kind of otherworldly quality to her that's exactly what i was going to bring up was the way they shot her in the rearview mirror and you don't see you don't actually see her until she gets out of the car you know, like her, you don't see her, you know, not shot in the mirror until she actually gets out of the car. And 
and she asks him how much is how much is the how much is it and he just drives away as a you know it, it it's a very very strange scene and i'm pretty much i pretty much would think that it's uh that it's his his dying dream i really think so um i i said i said the same thing about the ending of birdman to be honest and uh it's just it there it, it's just way too uh way too neatly wrapped exactly i'm yeah. sorry i'm blanking on words That's okay. here but uh scorsese has said that his main complaints about the film like particularly the ending is people come up to him and say well why didn't why weren't there any repercussions for Travis? Why didn't he go to jail? Why didn't he get in trouble? Like, so he just got off scot-free from, like, you know, murdering people? And his answer – I mean, he explained it a little more in detail, but his pre- answer pretty much was stranger things have happened in this city. You know, like, the way he envisioned it, it was like, you know, you know he killed the uh, the mafioso guy, so maybe they're in cahoots with the police and they want to keep this all under wraps, so they kind of just decided to, like – get rid of the charges on him so they could just keep this whole thing quiet. So that's the way he saw it when he was, like, filming it. That it was this whole behind-the-scenes thing of them, them just trying to cover their tracks. But, uh... That's the thing, too, about the uh, the ending. That, you know, he kind of just... Nothing happens to him, as far as consequences. Because, as Paul Schrader puts it, like, that ending scene with the rearview mirror is supposed to kind of evoke, you know, a restart. Where, like, you could put that scene back at the beginning of the film and then just restart the journey again. Because it's just an endless circle with him. Like, he, you know, he builds up his rage. He lets go of it. He acts out on his rage. And then he gets rage again. Absolutely. So it's just this endless circle with this guy. And Absolutely. And you also got to, you also note that Travis in the ending scene, his haircut is back to where it was at the like you said exactly like a cycle at the beginning of the film he doesn't have the you know the the mohawk anymore it's back to the to the longer you know more scruffy hair that he had throughout you know for the rest of the film so you know for years i thought uh, de niro actually shaved his hair to, for, to a mohawk but it turns out that it wasn't real it was a prosthetic but uh yeah. i found that out at the panel actually i was like really <laughs> for years i thought he actually he thought he was just going method with it that he actually shaved his head but Nah, yeah. that would have been too cool, I think. But um, and the uh the thing I also wanted to bring up was that there's this very uh false sense of calm at the end. So that's exactly how uh, Scorsese wanted to film it. You know, this is the end. You know, you know, you saw all the violence, and now you think everything's gonna go somewhat back to normal. But then, like I said, just you see that him stare at the rearview mirror, and then with the sting at the end. So you know, up. Oh, it's not going to end well for this guy. He's going back to what he was already doing. But, um, so taking all this into account, you know, the journey, I was going to say the hero's journey, but it's more an anti-hero's journey here, which is another fascinating thing about this script. What do you envision as his future? Like just as the, as the character, we can start with Dolfo. Like, where do you see this guy going now after this? Well, I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's dead. So, that's gonna be my answer too, actually. Uh, if, if he's not dead, I, I see it's kind of like we were just saying. I just see the cycle starting over. I see him basically being a vigilante, um, and it just might not end up so rosy for him later. 
um, uh, if he's not dead. Pretty much. That's exactly what I was going to say. You know, it's, it's like you said, the cycle starts over again. If, you know, he's not, that was one thing Scorsese always said. He's not changed by the end of the film. You know, this is not a redemptive arc. Okay, I'm this glad is... you mentioned that because and that's the thing because it's like, you know, you have the hero's journey, you know, the hero comes out at the end, you know, the events affect him in some way. You know, he comes out, I don't want to say like a radically changed person, but you know, there's a there is a change to the character after having gone what he went through. But with yeah. Travis, it's like it's just a straight line. You know, there's no like upward hill that he had to climb. You know, it's for him it's just a, there's no like emotional change in that regard as far as the character, which is a very unorthodox, like, way of writing, in my opinion. Because, you know, that just with any normal person, I would say, you know, whenever you go through an experience like that, something about you changes. There's something, a piece of that that always comes with you. But with Travis, you know, he's, like you just said, he seems unfazed by it all. Exactly. It's, you know, no, it, there there is no change. If, if this, if he actually lived... There, you know, this is going to happen again. That's a, that's. There's really no other way to, to, uh, to interpret that. You really expect him to be like, it's like Adolfo said. You really expect it to be like a nice, happy ending where he's on good terms with Betsy, and then maybe he'll 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 get together with her in the future. Not a fucking chance. <laughs> All right. But there's a uh, two more points I want to bring up as far as the ending goes, because I didn't really give my take on it. I would I like to think because I think the film works a little better if everything hap- that happens is real because the irony is so thick here, you know. Yeah. The fact that you know he goes on this killing spree and he's re- regaled as a hero, I just love just the irony is so thick on that and I just me my personal taste as a as a as a film watcher, I love stories like that that are thick with irony so. I just think that the film works better like that because, like I, like we said, it's going to happen again. You know, with this character, not, he's learned nothing from what he's done, and he's going to do it again. Absolutely. And uh, the second one I want to bring up is that it's a very – I don't know if it's how common the story is, but there are, have been some television airings, and I, I know you guys – you saw my post on this. There have been some yeah. television airings that had a very weird disclaimer come up at the end of it. You know, talking about how, you know, in the aftermath of violence, you know, heroes and villains, the messages are kind of mixed up. And the taxi driver explores this tragic, you know, definition or whatever it says. I don't want to look up the quote now, but and it just it's just signed the filmmakers. Now, I've never heard Scorsese or Paul Schrader talk about, you know, ever commissioning a disclaimer like that. Maybe it was like just the individual stations that showed it that wanted to put that because it just seems weird. You know, just the filmmakers, you know, and. I just wish one of them would talk about it because it's just kind of interesting that those stations kind of take it upon themselves to put that disclaimer up. I guess it depends on the region, like maybe more toward the south where there's like they're more like kind of conservative. They put that up, but it's just kind of it's just kind of funny, you know. Yeah, it's a weird disclaimer too. It's very strange. Like they like people. I guess they expect people to see the film and completely misinterpret it and try to do uh they don't ex- they expect people to it to warp people's minds and and you know try to take carry out something very similar like 
Adolfo mentioned the guy who tried to shoot Reagan for Jodie Foster. I wonder if it, because that, from what I heard, the earliest television airing of Taxi Driver that had that disclaimer was 1982, which is a year after that happened. So maybe that's a response to that? Possibly. It wouldn't surprise me one bit. Yeah, to our television audience, in the aftermath of violence, the distinction between hero and villain is sometimes a matter of interpretation or misinterpretation of facts. Taxi Driver suggests that tragic errors can be made the filmmakers which is kind of an eerie disclaimer too if you ask me you know very, i read that and i kind of got you know got a little some goosebumps but anyway. very very it's it's not the kind of disclaimer that you would normally see yeah it's very very strange but uh i mean but, but that's taxi driver and um so adolfo i mean you can give your final thoughts on the film and then uh headcase you could do the same but i feel that again like we pretty much harped about it you know the whole episode this is a classic film, one of the greatest American films ever made. Robert De Niro is on fire here during his his uh, his peak period. You know when he was you know, he was in form, and Martin Scorsese at his best. You know what else can you say? Um, yeah, I agree with all that. I, I did want to bring up a couple points. I just want to get them out of the way first. Can I, can I was saying at the beginning during our intro is that I th- I think it's a classic film. I think it's a, an all time cl- classic, canon essential whatever criterion whatever you know a praise you want to give it uh, about, about it being something everyone should see uh this is a film that everyone should see if you're into movies um but what i what i was saying earlier was is that i think it's it's profoundly misunderstood by the people that have the posters up in their dorm rooms and i'm not saying everyone who has their posters up in their dorm rooms is, is like this but i'd say it's it's a very kind of like you know quote unquote bro movie Kind of like, no offense, Mark Scarface, and kind of like Fight Club, where people just kind of see the main character as cool and a badass, and yeah. then totally misunderstand the point of the film completely. Um, so I, I think those people tend to kind of uh, um, distract from or, or give a bad name to the to to the film uh, that on its own is a classic is is a classic piece of cinema. Um, I just wanted to say that. But the other thing is I think that it's um kind of as an aside, uh did you guys, have you ever guy have you guys ever I mean I know you uh Mark has at least seen it. I'm not sure about you had case, but have you guys either seen or read the the Watchmen? Yes. Uh, I I every time I see or read Watchmen I feel like Rorschach is Travis Pickle. Like that <laughs> that it definitely I mean, makes character- sense. It definitely yeah. makes sense. It's you know I've seen, you know, the the character of Travis can be compared to, you know, there's a lot of influence in other films. Um, I've seen it compared to uh, Gaspar Noe's I Stand Alone with, you know, the character of the Butcher. I don't know if y'all have ever seen that. Uh, probably a more uh, well-known, at least in America, at least in America, would be uh, Michael Douglas's character in Falling Down. That's a good so, one. That's that's a that's a great example, I think. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie in a while, but I that's a great example. But I feel like in Falling Down, you are. I think in that film, I mean, I agree that it was probably influenced a lot, but I feel like the way that film is directed and written, you are certainly more on that character's side than Absolutely. you are on Travis Bickle's side. 
Absolutely. You know, like you're certainly meant to sympathize more. And I don't remember the guy's name in Falling Down, the Michael Douglas character. Uh, but I think you're certainly supposed to sympathize with him more. Um, but yeah, that's a good one. That's a good film. I haven't seen that one in a long time. Um, but yeah, I, every time I see Watchmen, I think that the, that boy is uh, Travis Bickle all over that character. Um, but the um, uh, but yeah, I think it's it's a classic film. I did want to ask you guys one question though. Uh, see, seeing as as it's your favorite film, I'm sure you have. I, I'm sure I know your answer to this. But how do you feel, uh, both of you, um, about this not winning the Oscar in 1976? Um, uh, that's, it's kind of a hard thing cause you know, my brother's favorite film is the one that won that Oscar. <laughs> so, we'll talk about one day here on yeah. both shows. Charlie, Charlie, um, loves Rocky, loves it to death. Like he, he, he loves the entire Rocky franchise. Even five? I don't think he likes five. But, uh, uh, no one likes five. Not the entire no. franchise. <laughs> but I don't he think loves, even Stallone likes five. He doesn't. You know, he's, he, he's, he, he's already said that. He, you know, and, and I've argued with him. And he, you know, it, it's a difference of opinion. Do I, is Rocky a fantastic film? Absolutely. Even with its, uh, uh, even with the misgivings I have with it. But should it have won the Oscar over Taxi Driver? My personal opinion, my personal opinion absolutely fucking not no chance should it have won the oscar but it's uh it's a sports story it's uh uh someone who went from nothing to something and and it's a great film i can understand why it won the oscar but do i think it's a better film than taxi driver absolutely not should it have won the oscar over taxi driver absolutely not yeah, that that's was, just my that, opinion. I mean, that was a competitive year too, so it's like well, yeah. that, that's that's kind of how it, how it is, right? It, it's kind of like '94 when Forrest Gump beat Shawshank in Pulp Fiction, right? It, it's one of those years that had just a very competitive year, and then the the fans of Pulp Fiction and the fans of Taxi Driver are going to be upset that their film didn't win over, you know, that their favorite film didn't win, and. And I think that some, and I'm not saying you do because I, I think right. you like Rocky, but uh, I, I think that for people then unfairly bring down the other movie as shit when it's not uh, just because their movie didn't win. Oh, uh, my yeah. my opinion on it is uh, I love I love Rocky. I love Rocky to death. Um, but the thing is, is that the Oscars, Taxi Driver isn't an Oscar movie. That's that's why it lost. It's yeah, not I, the kind of movie that they reward. So Rocky is the better quote unquote Oscar movie because that's the kind of movie Oscars like to reward. And Taxi Driver is not an Oscar movie. So should it have won as being an Oscar movie? Uh, no. But should it should it have been a you know whether it's a better quality film? That's a different interpretation altogether because the Oscars aren't about quality. That's the thing. The Oscars have never really been about quality. They say they are, but they're not. They're about a lot of times politics, and a lot of the time it's the Oscars are about what the industry wants to say. Uh, wants to say this is the film that represents our industry this year. Yeah, uh, and it yeah. and it has a lot of times nothing to do with quality. I mean, look at Crash. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, which I'll take any opportunity to to mock. But um, 
yeah, I I don't necessarily have a problem with Rocky winning because it's just not it, it's it's Rocky is a quote unquote Oscar movie, and the, it, it movies like Taxi Drivers just don't get Oscars, and I I stopped getting upset about that a long time ago like when when some of my favorite movies weren't nominated or weren't you know given the award because i realized well they're not gonna that's not the kind of movie that wins so yeah that's why us it's the same thing to go off on a little bit of a tangent it's the same thing with uh the grammys it's literally the same thing except with music you know i see a lot of people get pissed off when you know everybody knows i'm a hip-hop fan so I, i when i see people get pissed off that People like, uh, I guess, Nas doesn't win a Grammy, you know, and I'm like, are you really that surprised? You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, and don't get me wrong. I love Nas. Nas is one of my favorite rappers, but, you know, that's not the kind of uh, music that the Grammys look for. Same thing with the Oscars. Exactly. So. I mean, the Oscars will nominate a movie like that. But it's never going to give it to it. I mean, look at this. This year's a perfect example. Mad Max Fury Road, Best Picture nominee. No one knew that. No, everyone knew that wasn't going to win. But, you know, and Mark and I were having this conversation on, on Facebook the other day. You know, the, the eventual winner spotlight may or may not be remembered in 10 or 15 years. Mad Max Fury Road probably will be. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just how that's just how it is, you know. But, I mean, this was a competitive year. This was also the same year that Network came out. Yeah, Network had kind of a similar vibe to Taxi Driver, too, so that's probably kind of what killed it as far as, like, winning. But, uh, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, like, they they both have kind of similar, like, themes and atmospheres, you know, but, you know, still a great movie. Yeah, I mean, it was just a ridiculously competitive year. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't get the Rocky hate, but I, I understand, like, why people want it to have won, but... It wasn't going to win. Yeah, I guess I can understand why you say that. Um, and I have, and, and I agree. People who bring down uh, the other films that were nominated just because, you know, they, they bring down Rocky because it won over Taxi Driver. Those people are are fanboys. That's just how it is. And if you if you're a, a you know if you're so upset that your own that your film the film you wanted to win didn't win that you go oh that other film is shit that film is nowhere to shut the fuck up just shut the fuck up (laughs) i I mean if if rocky wouldn't have won you know uh, all the president's men was that same year network was that same year those are two other movies that if they would have won like I could, I wouldn't have had a problem with it either because those were both excellent films too. Honestly, the only one I haven't seen from that year is Bound for Glory. I've, I've you never mean the seen the one directed film. by Dixie Carter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh god. Um, but the other four, I, I mean, are are legit. I mean, Rocky, All the President's Men, Network, and Taxi Driver are all legitimate all time classics. So any one of those movies could have won, and I would have been, you know, I, I'd be happy about it. But the most Oscar-y of those is is Rocky, and that's why it won. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Headcase, what are your like uh, closing thoughts on uh, Taxi Driver? Your favorite film? There's really not much else I can say, but I would, um, you know, it's a fantastic film. It's a film I'm probably gonna watch and enjoy until the day I die. But I would not forgive myself if I didn't bring up my favorite scene in the film, you know. And I know I'm I'm kind of pressed for time because I got to go to work and shit, but I want to bring up my favorite scene in the film. It's the scene where 
He's uh, sitting on the couch or sitting in his chair. He aims the gun at the TV, um, and he's watching American Bandstand. Yeah. And uh, you know, oh, is that uh, what that obviously is? it's more yes, implied racism. It's more implied racism because he's yep. aiming the gun at the black couple on the TV. That's right. And then the 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 camera focuses focuses in on the uh, the uh, the the pair of shoes in the middle of the room, the empty pair of shoes, mm. and and the soundtrack. You know, the the song playing in the background is Jackson Brown's "Late for the Sky," and it's uh, it's just it it. It just fits so perfectly. And the lyrics, awake again, I can't pretend. And I know I'm alone and close to the end of the feeling we've known. And then it's just the long shot of him holding the gun up. It's just a long shot of him. And it's just at that point, you see the long shot of him, of Travis, and you look in his eyes and you already tell he's mm-hmm. too far gone. He's teetering it's on just, the edge at that point, yes. And then it, you no, see that I, more I, literally. he's not on the edge. He's over. He's already past the edge. But you see that I kind think. of more, uh, more literally when he's like with the TV when he, yeah. when it falls over, like he's like teetering on the edge until finally it just all comes crashing down, which is great. That's a great symbolism there too. Absolutely, I, I wouldn't have forgiven myself if I didn't bring that up. It's just absolutely, it's pulls on my heartstrings every time. And I know it seems weird a movie like this can pull on somebody's heartstrings but like i said when you see yourself in a character and you can empathize and you feel the same way that a character does even in certain even in just small ways you know it's 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 hard to explain right the this this film is just fantastic you know um you know i can't if you don't like the film that's that's on you i'm not going to insult you for not liking the film, but if you can't see why this film means so much to me, um, I have a song on my. Uh, I was gonna let you plug that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> at the end too. Yeah. I yeah. Was say, I, bring, I, bring up your taxi driver inspired uh, uh, track on your on yes. your album. Um, I have. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, uh, I have an album. I'm a artist, uh, a music artist, and I have an album called Lunatic Fringe. Uh, a self-portrait and on the song and on the track on the album i have a track called taxi driver which basically is on the it's not about travis bickle it's about me but the the title basically just ties the two together and you know there there's subtle there are subtle references in the song to um the film you know uh i mean i mentioned i he is God's lonely man, and uh, he no longer knows himself, and he won't take it anymore, which is a reference to uh, Travis saying, here is a man who would not take it anymore. So oh, there, I... are refer- <laughs> there are references to the film, but it's not about the film. It's about me. And so it, it's uh, – if you're interested in hearing it, you can buy it on iTunes. It's available on all digital retailers. Um, CDs are available at uh, my personal Bandcamp page, which is mcheadcase.bandcamp.com. You can also buy it digitally there. Um, yeah, that's just it's a it's a just it's not a love letter letter to the film. It just it shows how, how I relate to the film and how it, it, it's you just need to hear it. 
you need to hear it for your yourself to to understand. Right, right. And I'm glad you brought that up too because uh one of my favorite scenes is and I'm sure you guys all saw it me post it. Listen you fuckers, you screwheads. Screw Here's a man who would not take it anymore, who would not let Listen, you fuckers, you screw it. Had that little, that I little love it because it because it looks like a mistake on the surface, but you know, like you would see like in those like B movie like grindhouse flicks. But this is completely intentional because this guy wants to get his manifesto on the dot and won't accept anything but perfection. So the minute he slips up, he has to start all over again. It's it, it's basically it's it's like. It's uh, it it signals him trying to act like a badass, and when he messes up, like let me do that again. I can do it right this time. Yeah, listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. <laughs> it's it's it, it, it's perfect. It really is. Absolutely. And on that note, I think we're gonna wrap up for respective episode number eight zero. Uh, any questions, comments, feedback? Just send an email to fpmpodcast at gmail dot com or send us a tweet at fpmoviepodcast on Twitter. Adolfo plugs uh yes the essential films podcast uh not sure which episodes are going to be up right now but uh certainly we we've got plenty of uh plenty to choose from you can go back list the citizen kane you can listen to casablanca the godfather vertigo on the waterfront all the classic classic films we'll we will get the taxi driver at some point on that show as well uh but uh it, it just depends on when the random movie generator picks it but other than that uh yeah essentialfilmspodcast.com uh, uh, subscribe to us on the Essential Films uh, on iTunes. Uh, yeah, that's it. Headcase, anything you want to? I know you plugged your album already, but is there anything else you want to uh, shout out? Um, yeah, no, that's pretty much it. Like I said, the, the debut album, Lunatic Frangia Self Portrait, is available at all digital retailers. CDs are available at mcheadcase.bandcamp.com. Um, I've got another project coming later this year with a producer named Scotty Royal who produced uh, two songs on that album. And our collaborative collaborative project is titled Brothers in Arms. And that should be out. Uh, I'm supposed to start recording on that this summer. So that hopefully will be out by the end of the year. I mean, that's my plan anyway. But, you know, I planned a lot of shit with this album, and it took me <laughs> six years to finish it. So it we'll see. That's the point. At least you got it done. So. Exactly. But uh, hopefully, you know, I'll get it done. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at MC Headcase if you want to talk music, movies, whatever. Um, I'm a pretty friendly guy. I don't bite most of the time. so uh, Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to thank you guys for having me on the show. I oh. really, you know, appreciate the opportunity to speak out and, you know, be able to gush over my favorite film. Absolutely. I mean, we were planning this out. There was only one person we wanted for Taxi Driver. So uh, we're glad you were able to were able to come on the show with us. Thank you. But uh, if you don't mind, guys, I'm going to go grab another cup of Royal Crown Cola because that's all I have. So on behalf of myself, Adolfo, and Headcase on Sports Guy 515, thank you for joining us, and uh, we will see you next time. Take it easy, everybody.
Self-destruct 